Hello, and welcome to Prophetic Voices, Preaching and Teaching Beloved Community, a podcast from the Episcopal Church's Office of Reconciliation, Justice, and Creation Care, where we explore the season and the lectionary through the lens of social justice. I'm your host, Reverend Shaniqua, Staff Officer for Racial Reconciliation, and I am so glad you are here with us. In this episode of Prophetic Voices, we'll be discussing Easter Sunday. Our amazing guests this week are the Reverend Kevin Antonio, or K.A. Smallwood. He is the Associate Rector for Families, Children, and Youth at Grace Episcopal Church in Silver Spring, Maryland. When he's not praying, he's dancing to the rhythm of the beat for the trifold benefit of resisting the isms, self-care, and sharing the love. The Reverend Christopher McNabb is the Program Manager for Neighbor to Neighbor, a ministry of the Episcopal Migration Ministries. When not working, Chris enjoys camping and hanging out with his rescue dog, Lucky. And the Reverend Dr. Aaron Kirby, who is the rector of St. John's Episcopal Church in the Diocese of Western North Carolina. She is a sacred ground facilitator and is committed to social justice, racial reconciliation, and seeing the sacred in all of creation. Welcome, my friends. Thank you, everybody, for being willing to be guests on the podcast. I'm so glad that you're here. What's important to keep in mind on Easter, especially this year? One thing that's important, I think, is to remember that resurrection isn't something that we only are you know, waiting for at the eschaton. It's something that we experience every day. And growing up in the church and reflecting a lot in my ministry, sometimes I see that we lose sight of that, right? We push all of the things towards the eschaton of resurrection and don't get into like the deep nitty gritty of how do we experience it day in and day out, both with Mm. ourselves, with each other, and most importantly, with God. Yeah, I think for me, I always think that Easter Monday is among the most important days of the church year. It's not an official church holiday, obviously, but that's when we actually start making resurrection a reality for marginalized folks. Mm. I think if resurrection if easter is just a lovely time when we gather on sunday morning and there's easter lilies and the smell of incense from the easter vigil the night before it's lovely but if that doesn't translate into liberation and resurrection for marginalized communities then it just stays a lovely church day i think the easter story is most powerful when it's a liberating story especially for those on the margins Amen. I will say amen to that and lift that up. Yeah. We aren't here to only perform, right? If our liturgies are only focused on the movement and all of that and not the movement of the spirit outside of the church walls, then it becomes Sunday's performance. Absolutely. I think that's my concern of the Episcopal Church right now is that it feels, a lot of our work feels very performative. And I wonder, when's the rubber going to meet the road, right? When are we going to really start putting this into action, funding those ministries that are really important, lifting up the voices of those who are on the margins, whether they're church folks or not? And I think that the gospel passage, right, for the day is Mary Magdalene going to preach that resurrection story. How are we empowering the Mary Magdalene's of today to preach the prophetic message of the gospel? And so how are we asking our people to go out into the next 50 days and the next 365 days and do all of this? And and we do that without remembering that that dismissal at the end of our services 
that's what that's for. Mm. We are asking our people to do that. And I know all of you all are in like pretty big contexts and my church is very small, but it's one of those like small and mighty kind of churches where the people are daily working with and for people in this very impoverished rural community. And, you know, and I see them doing that, you know, and a lot of times I've been at other churches where where they do that in a way and they profess it, but they have forgotten that the calling and the work that they're doing out in the community and into relationship with them is about the church and about their calling. Uh, But I have found that in very small churches, the people often remember that. And that's where they get the energy and the desire and the drive day after day, do the volunteer work. At this church, some of the volunteers work you know, a 40 hour week, which is kind of exciting. We have a food pantry and it's on Fridays, but I see them coming in all the time and loading up their cars and uh, taking food where they hear that it's needed in the community around us. You know, people call in and they're like, oh yeah, we'll come, we'll come, we'll do this, you know. Uh, And I find that exciting and empowering. And it reminds me that the church is in many places, not performative. It is doing what Mm. we are called to do uh, and that those people are out there. And we keep getting told that that we're not that way. But I don't know, how many people do you meet that are just there for Sunday? You know, there are some, but I don't think it's most of our communities. I think most of our communities are grateful for the grace that they have received and willing to step out and be brave about being those witnesses without being proselytizers (laughs) at the same time, but just living their faith. I was thinking about when I was in school, because we'd always get Easter Monday off. And I remember we'd always ask our teachers, what about Easter Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday? (laughs) And so I think that might be the the, the sermon is like, what about the rest of Easter and Aaron, what you talked about? I'm going to kind of talk back and maybe that is the piece is like my question was going to be what liturgical suggestions do you have for this service and really hearing Aaron what you've just said like maybe the liturgical suggestion if liturgy is the work of the people is how are we doing that work out in the community rather than in our churches but what other thinking about that but also think about what are the liturgical suggestions I know some people like flower across or sometimes they'll do a children's sermon or I know one church they like dig up the alleluias and find it and I don't know if I'm supposed to say that because this will probably be heard in Lent but you all know what I'm talking about they'll dig it up and find them um, and kind of do some sort of celebratory how are we going to say that now what ideas do you have well one remembering that truly there's nothing wrong with us saying each and every day amen alleluia right Um, I think that we have to be very mindful of techniques that we use when it comes to our liturgies because they don't always correlate to what we are doing inside the church or even outside the world, right? Like I'm always going to push on that. For instance, when you look around the church that you're in and the things that you use, I'm way more concerned about the fact that we even use silver and gold. I didn't really think about that until this year. In this past week, I've been deep, 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 deep in the word. And when I think about the Episcopal Church, right, and just thinking about Reverend Stephanie Spellers and some of the work that she's done, a lot of those churches, right, a lot of our churches in this tradition, a lot of the wealth that is around the buildings themselves 
are representation of the type of thing that resurrection is opposed to, right? One of the liturgical things that we can do is be mindful, maybe start teaching about the things that are in the church, right? How did this building come about? What are we using when we use, you know, silver and gold? What does that really mean for us? Again, get so caught up in the liturgy of it all that the liturgy itself just becomes we lose sight of Christ and, and we mm. focus only on the liturgy, right? We're happy to lift up a chalice of gold in a beautiful liturgy and to, to have all the beautiful flowers. But again, if the liturgy does not translate when you leave the door, not only for the people, but also for the priest, then to me, I don't care how beautiful <laughs> the liturgy is. I don't care how many Easter lilies you have. If the Easter lily inside of your soul is not being watered each and every day, then that's more where the liturgy that I'm concerned of, the liturgy of the soul, we have to be very mindful of that. So I haven't really even given much thought to like digging up the alleluias. To me, they never die. Hmm. Resurrection again, right, is every day. I love that. That has always bothered me a little bit too, that churches will get like some kind of a, a gift, a legacy gift that somebody has given them and they'll buy like some big ostentations thing, you know, from organs to that nobody's ever going to listen to, you know, to gold or silver or something like that. You know, there are ways that that money could be put to so much better use. Hmm. You know, that could be a great way of kind of challenging our congregations on Easter Sunday and going forward into the Easter season. What is the theology of our money? You know, we're asked to do that when we do stewardship. We say, you know, every penny that we spend speaks of our theology about, you know, what do we really believe and where is that going? So I, I second that. I love it. It just always has surprised me. And I've always kind of liked, I don't know, this is about Easter, the Lenten season and the churches that I've been in and that I grew up in is like, they put away all that stuff all during Lent and they use wood or ceramics or something. And in, in my sending parish, they had potters, you know, there were people that belonged to that church and they were potters. And so all year, that's what they used mm. with their hands for the church. And they never used the gold and the silver. And that speaks to me and it makes me think there's like, three potters that go to this church now that I'm back in <laughs> Thank you for sharing that, Erin. It's so interesting how we are all here together. I actually just had an experience where something just clicked in me and I was like, I was presiding that day and I'm not going to use the silver and gold or even on the gospel book, right? I just like it to be simple. And I remember that I was gifted a ceramic, beautiful blue, small, simple Eucharistic set by my interim rector who was with us during the, kind of the start of the pandemic. And I loved it. And I think that that's exactly what you're talking about, Aaron, right? Like the things of the people's hands. And it reminds me also of camp, right? We usually use mm -hmm. ceramics, we'll bring out things, we'll make it. So I love that, right? It's just, it's a beautiful thing. I love a lot of what y'all are saying, and I think it speaks to what are our priorities, right? Jesus says very clearly, you cannot serve God and money. I didn't really appreciate that as a kid. The nuance was lost on me. I was like, well, how do you pay your rent? And, you know, how do you make everything work? But as I get older, I realize like, oh, who's your master? Who's the boss of your life? 
what's so beautiful about the simplicity of Lent, of Lenten worship, of camp, of what I've seen like at some retreat centers and a lot of like religious communities that I know in the Episcopal Church as well. They appreciate the simplicity because it's ultimately it's the Eucharist, right, that speaks for itself as Christ that is the center of our lives mm -hmm. and is the center of our worship and is the center of all of the actions we do, right? Whether it's working at the parish-based food bank or running the youth group or working with newly arriving folks to our country, all of it, we do it because it's what Christ compels us to do. And I think sometimes the gold and the silver, even if it's given with a full whole heart, I think that becomes the thing that almost distracts us from the sacrament. And that's my concern from a theological standpoint. Hmm. Yeah, definitely. During that day, I also <laughs> told the people, I, I moved the um, offering plates outside of the sanctuary, like right out the doors where the ushers, you know, could stand and be to collect. Because in the Lord's house, it's a house of prayer. It's so weird to me. What set it off actually was an event recently at the National Cathedral for NCS, the National Cathedral School. And we were in the worship. We were in the cathedral and everything was beautiful. My sister Misha, you know, did a homily. My grandma Paula was there. And everything was awesome. The kids were there and everything was really nice. And then there was something about, like, seeing the young people come with, like, six, eight, you know, silver offering plates around just kind of took me to a whole different place. And so then after that is when the next Sunday came and I was like, nah, I don't want y'all to be focused on that. And I think that not just because I don't want that, I believe that God wants us to be focused on each other and on prayer when we are in this space, right? Like we already know, as you said, Chris, we got bills to pay, people need food, <laughs> we have ministries to do, right? Like Aaron said, from all the things that our people are doing, small and big, medium, whatever size, um, when we are in the worship space together, that's what we should be focused on. Our prayer what compels us, as you said, Chris, to be in that space together and worry about the money, the finances of it after the service or whenever you can. But inside, just the passing it around and that whole thing for me is just like, I'm over that. <laughs> I've been really thinking about, at least this year, because of how much death I've had in my own family and friend network and how much we've had in South Dakota, about the communion of saints. And for some reason, that's really standing out. And I think I, what I remember someone telling me is this communion of saints in the Western sense, but also as Lakota people, there are certain times and we believe like when you come up to that communion rail, like I'm not just kneeling there next to the person I'm there with my grandma sitting next to me and my grandpa sitting next yes. to me and you know they're taking communion with me mm -hmm. and all those people who've died are right there next to me in that moment in time and th that always is such a powerful image for me as I'm thinking about that and that like now knowing that they've died knowing also that they will be resurrected to the community. Mm -hmm. What do you think about in the Isaiah's prophecy how do you see that reflected in the resurrection story? When I read that it was sad because it was a dream that even at the time couldn't come true. In God's time, it will. In God's time, a new heaven and a new earth and, and our nations and our people and all that we do will be of joy and people will have enough. Everybody will have enough to eat and everybody will be able to be together. But as I read it, you know, kind of knowing what happens, you know, that there's still, 
mm-hmm. in exile. They are, you know, they're still being held away from their homeland, that it was less of a prophecy and more of a sermon just to kind of give people hope. Mm. This is coming, it will come, but we might not see it, but we can still work towards it. And and we can know that God is planning that. You know, as I kind of look at the way the world is tanking right now with just increasing anger and division and you know we see it and we hear it constantly mm-hmm. how can we encourage people to want that enough to work towards making it come true mm. to say this can happen i read that and i feel sad and hopeful all at the same time mm. when i think of the passage and how it's kind of like reflected in my own life and the lives of people around me and who I've walked this path with, um, even you, Shaniqua, there have been very beautiful things that I've been able to see, like how have I experienced in myself and in this journey, a new earth or mm-hmm. a new heaven? And how have I been elevated and grown and changed, you know, even in my personal development? And then not only that, right? taking that and using it to share with other people, right? If we have the light and we share the light and the light is getting brighter inside of us, then we are supposed to share that with each other, right? Putting it on a lampstand. Um, and even thinking about that to get specific, right? When I was in Sewanee, when I was at School of Theology, I learned, I started reconnecting with my paternal grandfather who growing up, I didn't really have a relationship with him. But now we do, right? Like he's been in this process of healing with my dad and really trying to break down these barriers and these, you know, divisions where you see your family at the funeral or, you know, at the only on Thanksgiving and, you know, really trying to teach too, right? He's been teaching me things about my history and all that, right? I didn't even know that my roots, my indigenous roots are from the Piscataway people, And I have been just trying to learn more about that. They're still here in Southern Maryland and all around. And that to me is even like a new heaven and a new earth, right? Knowing Mm. that the history of my people are deep um, and being able to trace those roots that have been destroyed as far as the history of it, right? The written history of it, but still present in the spirit. And the church that I'm actually serving at, my first call is on the land. Part of the land was... Piscataway indigenous land that was um, taken and and experienced the civil war had passed through. So the church itself, the land that is built on, right? So when you talk about the ancestors and the communion, right? Even those who I haven't been able to know or meet, I feel that presence in that new earth, um, that hope that Aaron is talking about, right? Even in the midst of... Lord knows the devastation, but being able to take that, our testimonies and what brings us light that Jesus gives us in sharing that with other people. Thank you. No, thank you. <laughs> I've taken some notes. <laughs> you might get quoted in my Easter homily. Yeah. Just about the idea of looking at, you know, where do we see that in our own life on that macro yeah. scale, instead of trying to think about Mm -hmm. the whole world that 
And I see that with what you shared earlier, right? And your ministry and the people there, that's also a beautiful symbol and sign of it, right? That the people are still engaged. The people are taking that message out, right? Even as we are still challenging ourselves and our congregations to even push it a little harder, push it a little more, do more of the history, do more of the work, it's still important for us to remember that those things are still happening each and every day. So thank you, Aaron. Part of the Isaiah passage that sort of speaks to me is midway through, it says, they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. Mm -hmm. A little further down, they shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. I started with Episcopal Migration Ministries in September, right when Kabul, Afghanistan fell. And I had no idea when I started working with asylum seekers that that would include Afghans as well. And so within Episcopal Migration Ministries, I oversee the neighbor to neighbor program. Track one works with asylum seekers and track two works with newly arriving Afghans. Just before we hopped on the recording today, I was on a call with a sponsor circle, a team that is formed to welcome these newly arriving Afghans. The team leader was explaining to me how this little six-year-old boy was going to kindergarten for the first time. And in his class, there's another Afghan boy who arrived in December from Afghanistan and happens to live on the floor of this right beneath him in their apartment building. Hmm. And across the hallway is another Afghan family who's been here for 37 years. And this notion that like the next generation is rising up, right, is being raised up among us, and that this kid is safe now. And this kid is safe because the Episcopal Church said, we believe in the work of Episcopal Migration Ministries, we believe in this work of resettlement and relocation of Afghans. This little boy may never know what the Episcopal Church is, right? He may never walk into an Episcopal Church, Mm -hmm. uh, and that's fine. But because the Episcopal Church exists, this kid has a shot in this country. You know, his little brother was born in calamity mm-hmm. amidst the fall of Kabul, Afghanistan, but no more. Mm. So I think for me, like Isaiah takes on a whole new prophetic meaning this Easter. I get to witness this resurrection story happening live. It's mm-hmm. really quite powerful. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about that same thing, Chris. That same line is what stood out for me about the bearing children for calamity. And I was this past year, I've been thinking about the children that they were finding in the mass graves at the boarding mm-hmm. schools. And then mm-hmm. some of those children that were getting returned from Carlisle boarding school, you know, their remains were getting returned to the different reservations. And I was thinking about that. And, you know, we don't want that to bring them into calamity and we always want the best for them. And one of the things that I'm reminded of is in Lakota, the word for child is the same word we use for sacred. They're the same word. Mm-hmm. like literally translates to sacred. So I think the work that you're doing at EMM and the work that we do to care for our children is sacred work in and of itself because we're caring for our most sacred. Bring the little ones, right? Yes, exactly. Yes. (laughs) You know what what else I heard in what you were sharing because of people that were there ahead of him? When he got to school and when he got to that apartment building, he had home. Mm that there were people whose faces and language were welcoming and familiar to him, even in a very foreign, tumultuous journey to get where home could be again. He's so little that this will be home, but for his parents, that also had to be a huge thing, or grandparents. I don't know how he got here with, you didn't share that, but, but just to have that familiarity 
because of the work that has been done, you know, not just in the last week or two weeks, or but for years. When have you experienced the mercy of the Lord that endures forever? And this sort of sounds like an example, you know, we can see that mercy and how we're caring for our most vulnerable. Was there ever, you know, in that psalm, it also talks about the same stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And mm-hmm. When have you experienced that? Or has there ever been a time where you've seen something like that, where the, the stone that was rejected has been the stone that is then redeemed? Let me count the ways. <laughs> oh, goodness. Yes, 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 yes. There have been many, many times in different areas of my life, right? Familial, social, friendly, romantic, church, right? In my experiences, being a Black person, being a queer person, being brought into this world with that identity already rejected, right? Mm. If you don't have, even though things are growing and changing and new heaven and this new earth are present and both we are, are spiraling in a beautiful way towards it, there are a lot of things that we still have to work on when it comes to that. So I think for me, there have been moments where that has been the case. I mean, I think that's the Christian message, right? The late Rachel Held Evans spoke about this so beautifully that for years, LGBT queer people have been excluded from the church. And I look around and see who God is raising up for ordination in the Episcopal church. And it's like, I mean, thank God for queer people or else, you know, we wouldn't be able to staff our churches, Um, (laughs) right? Like there are ways in which the very people the church tries to put down are the people who lead the church. And this is true now of of queer people. And of course, it's true of women's ordination. I mean, where would we be Mm -hmm. without female Episcopalians who said, yeah, I'm going to, despite all the challenges in the church, despite all the ways in which this is going to really hurt and this is going to be hard. I believe in the gospel ways in which it can liberate us all. And where would we be without female clergy? Without female clergy, without queer clergy, we could not be the Episcopal Church. And so I think that's the powerful message that the people we try to oppress, the people we try to nail to the cross, are the ones who rise. Hmm. And it makes me think too about, again, about you know, the work that we've been doing as a church for, you know, decades around understanding Christ's inclusion, you know, true, Mm. and I hate to use even the word inclusion, that openness that we are all children of God and all worthy and deserving of being front and center and loved and welcomed in every church when, you know, that wasn't true 50 years ago. Places where it was, it was like, they would go, well, you know, you can sit over here with me kind of a thing (laughs) in this little church here and in other churches that I've been in, you know, if a new person, you know, just kind of walks through the doors, finds that courage. Then a couple of times in the previous church where I was, we had Joy Layden come and talk to us about her journey. Joy Layden is the uh, the first trans woman to teach in an Orthodox Jewish Mm. college. And it was a hard journey to get them there because they tried to get rid of her, but they had such good, strong equity rules at that college that they weren't able to. And her students love her, but she wrote a book about her faith and how her understanding of God as a being that did not have a defined gender uh, saved her life as a young mm. person growing up. Talked in depth about that, and we had her at 
the church where Shaniqua and I both attended for a while. I guess we didn't just attend there. (laughs) (laughs) So here I am at this little church in Western North Carolina. I've only been here about a year and a half, and so I don't know all of the things about the people here, but one of our members who came from another tradition that was very shaming has recently come out as a 50-year-old man given life when people were like, well, yeah, <laughs> of course, you know, we, we loved you when you came in the door and we, and we already understood that, but uh, he's been bringing friends with him. And a few weeks ago, he brought a trans woman with him, beautifully dressed and very nervous. Also mm. from that former tradition that, you know, Southern Baptist kind of place where religion was not a safe place. Uh, churches were not a safe place, but a shaming and scary place. And she received exactly the same kind of a welcome that any little white herald white lady would have received uh, coming into that church, which is they descended on the new person. <laughs> <laughs> And started asking, you know, uh, we're going to go to lunch. You know, do you want to come with us? And are you going to come back? And we, you know, what's your name? And you know, where do you live? And, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And that is something that I was like, oh, thank you. Because I was thinking already in my mind what I might do <laughs> to run interference if I needed to. And they did it for me. You know, they... Uh, they did that. They were the welcoming presence um, in that church, which is what they're supposed to be. And uh, I guess you can tell I really like it here. I really like this church. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like, whoa, how did I get this lucky? <laughs> the other story that comes to mind, I just watched a documentary about Pauline Murray. And, mm. you know, someone who came to priestly ordination later in life, we now would call it gender queer, although I don't think Polly probably had that language to utilize. And she often, her legal briefings and her legal work was used by Thurgood Marshall mm-hmm. and Ruth Bader Ginsburg, right? Some of the giants of the legal profession. And she still was not given tenure at the universities where she worked and she had to fight for her basic rights. And in the end, at her ordination, she said all of it came together that this journey she had been on came together in a powerful way in her priesthood. I think that's the gospel message for me lived out, right? That the one who's rejected has become the chief cornerstone. That Christological message is repeated over and over again. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the gospel. Let's do it. Let's talk about that gospel. Yeah, I'm waiting. So I'm going to start with a question that I had and just like, so, you know, Mary came and saw and she ran and then the other two were running. There's a lot of back and forth in this one. Like before, it's like either just Mary comes or just somebody else comes. And I'm like, what is going on with all this back and forth? What is John talking about? And I always struggle with John. I have to remember that he's a poet and that's kind of how I think through it. So what is that about? It's back and forth and this foot race and all of this. Yeah, well, why didn't you choose the Luke one? You had that option too. <laughs> We did that one for Easter Vigil. We talked about that one, yeah. (laughs) Thinking about the back and forth, even just thinking about that, right? Like when you sit and you think about that, they're moving from one place to the next. What are they doing, right? 
They're going somewhere, they're seeking, they're learning, they're bringing back, right? Which is much of what we have been talking about, right? Mm-hmm. Seeking, finding, sharing. This is exactly what we should still be doing. The footprints that we leave of our lives and our ministry should have a back and forth, right? There should be a back and forth of how we experience them. When we start to stand still is when it gets a little stale. <laughs> mm. Still is stale. Okay. But they're talking about Peter and the other disciple, John, went in just knowing that he was gone and they didn't know what had happened to him. And it says the other disciple who reached the tomb first always went in and he saw and believed for as yet they did not understand the scripture. So it just occurred to me that this always gets preached that he believed that Jesus was resurrected, Mm -hmm. but that's not what it says. He believed that he'd been stolen mm-hmm. or that somebody had done something to him mm-hmm. because that's the way it follows. Mm-hmm. Is that a like a wrong insight? Am I reading that wrong? Or mm-hmm. I've never thought about it like that. I had thought about it as maybe like church, like how, you know, if we're trying to find a new church home or trying to go to church, like we kind of come in and we kind of see and see how we're treated by the people when we visit. Mm-hmm. And we might go back, we might bring mm-hmm. a friend to see how do they feel about it. Kind of like the story you just told, Aaron, and see how they're received. And it's kind of like, we don't, we're not really sure yet if we fully understand, but we got to do this back and forth game mm-hmm. or same thing, like, as we're discerning a call to whatever ministry we're called to, whether it be priesthood, diaconate, lay, whatever. You know, we do the same thing. Like, let me stick my foot in the water and kind of see, and let me pull back a little bit. and Because yeah. we don't fully understand. Like, none of us fully understood what it meant to be a priest until you're in it. And I still don't think, I know I still don't understand what it fully means. But, you know, as we kind of do that little dance, it reminded me of that. Yeah. It's a surprise every day. I never thought of it that way, Aaron. I'm happy you brought that up. For me, I think... Right? Like it's like when something really good happens, Brene Brown talks about foreboding joy. Whenever something mm. really good happens, we're always nervous. Like, well, when's the next bad thing going to happen? Mm. We're preparing ourselves to not feel the grief, but as a result, mm. we can't feel the joy. Mm-hmm. And, yes. you know, Richard Rohr talks about this notion that the good news is almost too good to believe. It's mm. almost too good to be true. Mm. And for me, if I was, you know, if I was a disciple or an apostle and I walked into the tomb, I'd be like, I have nothing, literally nothing in my life through which to process this new information. Mm. You know, when I was a hospital chaplain and we had to tell people bad news, you know, and they would just get that look on their face of like, they couldn't process it because they had never felt something so tragic. They had nothing through which to process this new information, no past experience through which to understand this new event. That's, I think, what resurrection is, right? On the opposite side of tragedy is this incredible joy. But if they've never experienced it, if they weren't there when Lazarus was raised, right? How would they ever possibly comprehend of it? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Hmm. Maybe how do we allow ourselves to have joy? I know that was a conversation in a couple episodes we've talked about, especially as folks who might be oppressed. Mm-hmm. You know, if we're, if we're the Ash Wednesday, Good Friday type of folks that really identify with Jesus' suffering, sometimes it's hard for us to let go and really just be able to embrace the joy without fear of, of what could happen mm-hmm. yeah. or of the other shoe that might drop. Yeah, especially if that's what life has always handed us. Yeah, that goes to the back and forth with Mary, mm-hmm. doesn't it? Because she but, too yeah. probably believed the worst, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, and she just couldn't even leave. 
and just kept standing there and weeping. And because she was there, that idea of just showing up and being there and being present to whatever is brought to you, she got the resurrection first, you know, in her deepest, deepest grief. She got that surprise that she couldn't possibly process and yet processed it with help. Let's get into Mary, (laughs) Miss Magdalene. How do you identify with Mary Magdalene or what do you see as a gift that she brings to all of us? Woo, 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 I've been waiting. (laughs) All right, Kay. Literally my patron saint. I was actually born on July 22nd when we commemorate her. And I've always felt very connected to her. I've been at this church for three years now and hadn't really shared the fullness of like my testimony, right? Like things from my childhood all the way up to and how the spirit has moved, right? What I love about Mary Magdalene is that she's both so misunderstood, right? All these things have been said about her. She's this, she's that. She's misunderstood basically for her body and her mind, right? Which in the collect for her, talk about body and mind. Reflecting on my own life and her being my patron saint and feeling so close to her and feeling so close to Christ, I also see the journey through my own experiences with how others saw, used, or abused my body and my mind and how that transformed myself and where Mm. there were blocks to my own experience of that joy, right? And how this journey that I've been on, right? So I have been able to do therapy consistently and learn more about the mind and the prefrontal cortex and how that works, right? And how we move. And now that I'm getting all this clarity and seeing that it's like, oh yeah, this is what we're supposed to share. This is what we're supposed to do. And personally, um, which is one of your questions, I super identify with Mary when it comes to experiencing the mystical presence of Christ, the mystical presence of God. Hmm. I also, in that same sermon, talked and shared finally about mysticism, right? And being a mystic and what that looks like. Both in my personal experiences, tons since I was a child, but also with my family, right? That was very interesting. When we had an experience, a communal experience of the presence of an ancestor through the census. So some of my family members, we were all, it was like Christmas or something. And some of them, right? These are conversations we have in the family, right? Like we open Mm -hmm. about like that, right? But the church is like, there's no way, there's no way. (laughs) We're having a great time. We're talking, we're laughing. We're at my great grandfather's home. All of a sudden, some of the family members smell my great-grandmother's perfume, right? At the same time, and Mm. I didn't have the pleasure of meeting her, um, but at the time that they were smelling her perfume, I got like a flutter kiss on my eyes, right? So like this glowing light, right? Similar to a light that I've seen tons and tons and tons and tons and times before through depression, meeting angels who, when you turn to look at them, disappear before your eyes. I'm telling y'all, the presence of God is everywhere. Mm. The mysticism, the mystical elements, right? We talk about the mystery of the faith isn't, again, something that we only see at the eschaton. It is happening every single day. Angels are walking on this earth. God is here with us. The Spirit is moving. And so I am obsessed with Mary Magdalene. I feel her very close to me. I feel her inside of me with all the communion of the saints and the ancestors. So I'm very excited. This is why I partly picked this day. (laughs) 
Where is your church? I want to come to your church when I'm vacation. <laughs> <laughs> I'm at Grace Episcopal Church in Silver Spring. But I guess we experienced just what you talked about, Anne, right? And Chris, like that pause, right? Where we look and we're like, how? What does that mean, right? For all of us, yeah. Oh, how wonderful for you. That experience with your grandmother, that's just amazing. I guess mine is, is a little bit different. You know, my closest with Mary Magdalene, who I also kind of revere and understand. But, you know, there's another tradition that, you know, is a little closer biblically aligned that, you know, she was not the prostitute. She was the woman with the seven demons, you know, that had experienced that healing from Christ. And he kept her close to him. In one of the books that I read about her life that like meant a lot to me, he kept her close to him so that, you know, that swept out house would not get refilled with the demons of her life, you know, and I mm. have in the past of my mm. life, you know, mm. battled with depression and just sort of all kinds of things and a little bit of abuse and things like that, which I sometimes share a little bit of that with my congregation, but not, you know, your brave, you know, three years, that's, that's good bravery. I identify too with her being the sister of Martha, you know, that this is the mm. same Mary. Her focus was not on like keeping the house clean and and all of that kind of stuff, which is worthy work and important work, but not mm. when Jesus is sitting there. The place to be at that point is at the feet of the master and learning and hearing that good mm. news and knowing that you are worthy of it and not hiding away thinking that you're not. In that one instance, Martha did. And then she turned it right around because, you know, when later when Lazarus was dying, she went after Jesus, didn't she? Martha was like, you (laughs) are in the wrong place. I'm glad. (laughs) If you'd been there, this would not have happened, you know, and I could just, I can, that's my sister. And I can just, (laughs) Mm. and I can just hear that. Mm -hmm. But that place of recognizing that this person is different, this person is special, they are not going to hurt you or anyone else, and in fact, they are going to lift you up. And that even in death, you want to be close to them, and you want to give voice to the mourning that you need to give. And then when you are told that that didn't happen because you were there at Lazarus's resurrection, you accept it. And joyfully go about proclaiming it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I like that you mentioned that. Oh, she has seven demons. And growing up, just hearing the word demon, right? You think demons under your bed and everything's scary, right? And we're like, these demons are things that are out there. The spiritual forces of evil are indeed out there. The demons that we place on one another, right? From childhood on. When we think about those children, mm-hmm. right? Because that's where it started for me, right? It was childhood. When you see these things, you know, domestic violence and on and on, familial violence, whether it's physical, verbal. And it's important for us to start owning that so that we, too, share that light of Jesus and are able to do what he did for Mary and lifted those seven demons, helping each other through that experience, again, that resurrection, that new heaven, that new earth, because sometimes we do that. Um, I know I have, right? I definitely know I have said nasty things to people. I've done nasty things and then had to like actually repent, right? Sometimes it was years. Sometimes it was a day or a month. Being able to turn back and remember that Jesus is still there, still teaching. That's what's important. Still healing. 
where might we find Jesus but not recognize him? And I always wonder in that story, like when I preach on it, I talk about a dandelion when it's yellow versus the dandelion when you blow on it. You know, like you're not going to know that's the same plant unless you've watched it change. And I kind of imagine Jesus looking different after being resurrected, which may explain why, you know, you, you might not recognize him. But where might we find Jesus but not recognize him? Or where, where might we see mm-hmm. the sacred but not recognize it? I think this goes back to the division that we were talking about a little earlier, Aaron, that, you know, a lot of us are feeling in the country, right? We always think God is on our side and God can't possibly be with people with whom we disagree. Mm. And that's just not been my experience. I think it's important to distinguish, like, I think there are some ways in which people on the other side of whatever we believe, right, can certainly be perpetuating abusive behavior. That's not what I'm talking about. We always have to call out, you know, ways in which people are being harmful. You know, I think there are ways in which God dwells within each and every human being. And our task is to constantly be sifting through all the things with which we disagree, all the things which are hard for us, and say, I know there's a God spark in there. Absolutely. I'm going to push a little bit with that. We're all created in God's image. We all, God's spark is within us. Growing up, you know, I internally was always very much like, I wanted to, and this is probably from my mom, but wanting to see everything beautiful, wanting to like kumbaya with everyone, and then reflecting and being like, that's not the case. And then looking into the word and being like, Jesus does make a distinction and it's okay for us to own that, right? Like there is a distinction when it comes to how we move through our life, right? The God spark is definitely in all of creation. Mm. But just because we all have the God spark, how we use it really matters. How we share it really matters. And whether it's burning bright or it's a little dim really matters. All of us in our ministries, everyone who's on this podcast, right? The same is still true. There are days when we are shining bright and days when we bring it down. But when it comes to like the forces of wickedness and that, I don't play with that because then we tend to allow too much in that actually is antithetical to that new heaven and that new earth. We need a new heaven and a new earth because look at what we've done, right? Look at the human history. Much has been done by, by the hand of man. Mm. And we have to really be specific with that, right? And see what that looks like. Look at the history of our nation. And the Episcopal Church, right, has a history with that when it comes to race. Being that kind of lukewarm that has not allowed people like Paul Murray to move through the ways who have been before me, who have opened so many doors, but still was met with this not yet, not yet, maybe soon. Hmm. We can own that through our lives. We have to own the divisions within ourselves first not thinking of ourselves as only divine and holy and the spark within us, but knowing that our right hand and our right eye can cause us to sin and sometimes we have to bind it up. Often we have to repent. And then how do we share that truth with the world? How do we share that truth in our ministries and inspire others to start making that division? Because the division is important, not in the sense of like, we aren't all together, we aren't all on earth, we are, but in the sense that we, like all of us on this podcast, are aiming for that new heaven. We're aiming for that new earth. And everybody isn't doing that. <laughs> so there must be a division, right? 
No, that's absolutely true. And, and I appreciate that clarification. I agree with you, right? Jesus tells us, cast yeah. the dust off your feet and walk off of that town and walk away. You know, there absolutely are ways in which staying in certain relationships or staying in certain circumstances or not calling out sin allows the demons to come in. So absolutely, mm. I think there's a way in mm -hmm. which we need to mm -hmm. call out sin corporately, right? Institutional sin and also individual sin. And at the same time, I think what Jesus does masterfully, he really does see the human being. He sees that person. And I guess that's what I'm saying is that there are ways in which we absolutely have to call things out. That's our prophetic call. And at the same time, recognize that this is a human being worthy of love, worthy of respect. Mm. And I think the truly powerful message about Christ is that no one is beyond redemption. And no one is, but there's also, you know, that thing Jesus does call out and say is that you need to want it. You know, you need to recognize that you need it and ask for it. I was recently reminded of Elie Wiesel, who lived through Auschwitz and, you know, died in 2016. And one of the things that he said in an interview that God can forgive us for our sins against God, but only we can forgive others for sin against us. And Jesus even said, even said that, didn't he? Uh, if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Hmm. If the sins hmm. of any, they are forgiven. And he said, you know, I, I can't ask God for forgiveness for something that I have done to you. I can only ask you for that forgiveness. And sometimes it takes a lifetime or it can't come. We hear all the time about entering into that space of being able to forgive as Christ forgave, but that's a work. You know, that's a process of freeing ourselves from that pain, but sometimes it's just too great. And when, Kay, when you were talking, some of that stuck in my head and that prayer where he asked God, as for my enemies, I did not ask you to punish them or even to enlighten them. I only ask you not to lend them your mask and your powers. If you must relinquish one or the other, give them your powers, but not your countenance. Hmm. It's a little bit about that place that we say that God is on our side and so can't possibly be on someone else's side. But of course, you know, God is on the side of being in good and right relationship with one another and guides us to that through Christ and through the resurrection. Hmm. We've talked a little bit about some ideas, but what ideas do you have for preaching this text on Easter or suggestions maybe? Thinking of Mary Magdalene and her, I've seen the Lord, right? Sharing that, where have we seen the Lord in our experiences? Where have we seen that resurrection? And again, being specific in that same sermon, the experience that I really shared, the example, was my relationship with my mother, right? Who's like my best friend. She always jokes because she, her and my dad had me when they were 15 and 16. But she had to have a C-section because my head is so large. So she always jokes. She's like, you're a miracle baby, da da da, da. 
and we have a beautiful relationship, right? And then I was 16, finding myself, finding my identity. You know, she didn't have the best reaction as parents sometimes do, right? To me coming out or actually I was outed, but that's a whole nother story. And I was confused because she's always had like LGBT friends and da, da, da. But again, sometimes parents react differently. And that night I actually ran away from home, right? And for years I've been from like home to home, experiencing different kind of things. And finally, you know, I got into college and my mom and I weren't really talking over years, like years. It was so weird. I would only see her at like family gatherings and they were awkward. And I was being transformed in my own way. And she was, because as I was in school and, you know, doing many different things with the church still and learning so much from my grandmother Paula, who is like a rock in the family she was also having her transformation and she reached out with an olive branch, right? When I was graduating college and I took the olive branch and we reconnected and it was awkward and it was weird. And, you know, we didn't know how to navigate the space. There's foot traffic back and forth and we had to relearn each other, right? And respect when my mother respects me now. Now my mother is calling me about her prayer life and we're sharing like, and we have this new relationship and this new heaven and this new earth. But it took work, but we both wanted it. So that's kind of like what I talk about, like, especially with adults. Like, I don't have cut cards when it comes to experiencing real reconciliation. It is hard work, but I have seen the Lord and it happens every single day, but it is work. And when we encourage the people in our congregations Mm. to just feel good about coming to Sunday service and feeling good about doing what they think they should be doing, but not really doing it in their own lives. That's a problem. We're not really seeing the Lord. We are just showing up, but we can experience this reconciliation, this resurrection every single day. It is hard work though, but it's beautiful work at the other side. And I believe that in every aspect, church, corporate, right? Like the whole earth, we can and should and will experience that. I think for me, the line, whom are you looking for? We talked earlier, right, that if Christ is the center of our worship and Christ is the center of our congregational lives, our personal lives, and we're constantly looking for him, that can be an important way to live out Easter beyond just Easter Sunday morning. But whom are you looking for? Of course, right, we see over and over again throughout scripture that Christ reveals themselves in the marginalized, in the oppressed, in the hungry. And so Mm. if we're constantly looking for Christ and we're constantly, we have that idea of Easter, that concept of resurrection and the hope that it brings, not just Mm. whom are we looking for, but what are we looking for? We're looking for Christ and we're looking for him risen. Mm. And if we don't find it, then we're going to, we have to get to work because then it's on us to be the resurrection, to be the Easter people. I think I'm still drawn to the disciples believing the worst, tying that to why are you weeping? So naming the pain and then asking the question about how we can turn that around, how once it's named Hmm. the pain of our community, of our country, of our own hearts, our own family, of anything that we were doing, that we can't really do anything with that or experience resurrection until we give it a name. And once you've named something, then you're able to take its power away that it holds over you, the dominion Mm -hmm. of that pain, of that 
oppression or abuse or whatever it is. Once it's named, it's just a thing. And the resurrection is on the other side of that because that's when we can begin our work because we know what we're dealing with. Just the compassion that I hear in that. It, you know, not, well, why are you weeping? I'm standing right here, but tell me hmm. about it, which was to meet people where they were and ask them to name what they needed and then to give them that hope and that healing that they needed. So I think that's where I'll probably right now <laughs> go with it. <laughs> now I want to visit all your churches. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I have to preach on Easter Sunday too. So I'm going to definitely be listening to this podcast. Thank you so much for being willing to be here and to share your wisdom and grace and thoughts and stories and ministries. Thank you for having us. Yes. Yeah. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. If you want to learn more about Beloved Community, visit episcopalchurch.org forward slash beloved hyphen community. Thanks to our guests, K.A., Chris, and Aaron. Thanks also to our production team, especially Chris and Asma. If something you heard today moved you, please rate, review, and of course, share our podcast. That's all for this season of Prophetic Voices. Until next time, let your light shine. You're invited to join thousands of Episcopalians, neighbors, and friends this summer at the Love Always Revival at the KFC Yum Center in Louisville, Kentucky. On Saturday, June 22nd, get immersed in inspiring worship and community, deepen your love for God, kick off the 81st General Convention, and extend a warm welcome to folks discovering the Episcopal Church. The revival is free to attend, so bring your friends. If you're from a neighboring diocese, check in with your diocesan revival champion to find out about group travel options. You can find more information along with registration at iam.ec lovealways.